You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 79. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much for listening. This episode is sponsored by moodsprays.com. Anti-bad mood sprays are witty and effective vegan aromatherapy sprays designed by Heidi Reddig. At the end of this episode, I'll be speaking with Heidi about her company and all of the awesome moods that she's helping us eliminate through her aromatherapy sprays. And I'll just give you a heads up. One of my favorites is called Elimination of the Ego. Before we get into the show as well, you may notice that the sound on this episode is not quite what you're used to in the intros and outros, and that's because yet again, I am traveling. This trip came up super last minute, and I've been in Michigan all week working on a secret project. I guess I should say special mission, and I can't wait to share what that is with you in probably about a week or two. This is the second part of a two-part series we have on The Lively Show called 27 Ways to Make Money Online. You can catch the first part with Hillary Rushford in episode number 78, detailing all of the many ways that she has made money online over the years. Of course, there are many more ways to make money online than just what Jesse and Hillary are sharing. So feel free to go to thelivelyshow.com and go through the tabs, specifically blogging, career, and business, if you're interested in learning how other people who have been on The Lively Show have grown their online businesses. You can use those category tags in order to search the show specifically by those topics. We have a free printable for you detailing the 27 ways you can make money online. My associate producer, Grace, made it. It's beautiful and really easy for you to use to follow along and take notes. You can print it out at jesslively.com slash jessierteague. And now we're going to talk about today's guest. Jessie is a great friend of mine. I call her my business wife. So whenever we have business questions, we can give each other a call when we're finding that our husbands are kind of sick of us talking about things. We have each other to go to. Jessie is a multifaceted entrepreneur like Hillary. She's a peacock with many feathers. I'll let her explain all of them, but I'll say that you can go over to styleandpepper.com to check out all the things she's going to share. And she has a new podcast with her husband called Marriage is Funny, which you should totally check out. Let's go to the show. Jesse, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Jess. I am so excited to have you for our second part of the 27 ways to make money online. But before we get there, let's start with your story and background. How did you get to where you are? Oh my goodness. It has been a long and windy road. I guess the best place to start would be back when I was, this is kind of funny, back when I was 11 years old, I remember that my whole goal in life was not what you might expect from that age of a little girl. I know a lot of my friends were not super focused on their lifelong career at that point, but I was just dead set on being the next, at the time, Katie Couric was who I totally wanted to emulate. I was like, (laughs) I'm going to be the next Today Show anchor. I'm going to be reporting on, you know, all this hard-hitting news and in everyone's kitchens while they eat their breakfast every morning. And I was just like so set on this that it became a bit of an obsession for me. Back then, of course, I think it was probably kind of cute. But um, as I got older and started to actually pursue that path through 
kind of a special track in high school. And then with my major in college, I had a lot of really interesting kind of realizations about the industry and about that line of work that created some tension for me and uh, slowly started to realize through a few different internships in the industry and just kind of talking to professionals who were currently doing what I thought my dream job was, I learned that that wasn't actually the path that I wanted to take. And so I felt like something that I had really been striving for and craving and excited about my whole young adult life, all of a sudden felt turned on its head and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do next. How old were you at that point when you realized it wasn't what you wanted to do? I was 19. It was the summer between my sophomore and junior year in college, I'm pretty sure. And I had just interned at the NBC affiliate in Phoenix. um, And I was doing some on-air work there on the morning show, which was really fun. And I got to do some work in the marketing department. And at the time, I was majoring in both broadcast journalism and media communication. So it felt like, you know, the perfect internship. I know I was getting great experience. And And I had a bit of an intense moment in the ladies' restroom um, (laughs) when I was in there literally washing my hands after I had just gone to the restroom. And one of the anchors who, again, I watched because I grew up in in Scottsdale. So this is like my hometown station. And one of the anchors that I'd grown up watching and really admired came out of one of the stalls and said something like, is this what you're aiming to do with the rest of your life? And I was a little bit starstruck probably, but I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I, I love being here and, you know, I feel like I'm learning so much. Something that I, you know, I tried to pull something together that sounded professional and like impressive, whatever. I probably was stammering the whole time, but she goes, if you ever want to have a family or be settled in one place and live a life where you get to see your husband and raise your kids together, I would get out while you still can. Whoa. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's so helpful of you. (laughs) I just remember thinking, fantastic, which the funny part is, at the time, I thought that those were things that I really wanted. And so I kind of freaked out. I'm sure I probably was like, oh, haha, okay, thanks for the advice or something, you know, and she left and I left and I don't even think I ever saw her again. That really shook me in a weird way. And I remember thinking that I just hadn't ever thought through what types of implications my career choices would have on my personal life. Like from an early age, I think people will say like, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And most of the time we just pick something that we're interested in or we pick something that sounds great. And then of course, as you get older, you learn more about yourself and what your skills and talents are and what you want to do. And of course it grows and develops from there, but I had never thought of it from that angle. And so it really freaked me out. Do you think she was just having a bad day that day? (laughs) I'm sure she was. She was probably just like grouchy. She'd been up since 3 a.m. because she was the morning anchor. And like, you know, she kind of I think she might have expounded on it a little bit by saying she's not the one that gets to get her kids out of bed and get them off to school every day. And that that was really hard and that she's tired. So she has to go to bed in the evenings and doesn't get to be with her husband after her kids have gone to bed. And if you think about it, it actually makes a ton of sense if that's a huge priority for you and you want to be a really present person in your kids' lives or in your husband's lives, I can see why it would be challenging. And then the moving around thing is just so true. I mean, that's a line of work where most people end up finishing their degree and then having to move to a smaller market in order to work their way up through the system. Nicole Lappin came on earlier this month and shared her journey through the CNN and CNBC 
desks and she definitely started in smaller markets at first as well. I think she was even in high school when she got started. Yeah. And so was I. My high school was flying me to competitions around the country doing reporting and anchor work to represent our school. It was amazing. I was having the time of my life. During those years, I was like, this is it. I am so meant to do this. And I think one of the things that's so interesting about what she said and the things that freaked me out was, you know, she said, if you want to be a strong presence in your children's life, and if you don't want to move around a lot. And at the time, those felt so important to me. But now we don't have children and we don't actually plan on having children. And then we also move around a lot. So it's kind of funny because when I think back, I'm like, man, I actually think that I probably, it's just so one of those things, like you never know what decisions are going to make an impact on where you end up or what your happiness is like. And I, I actually feel a lot of comfort in looking at that moment and saying, because of what I know now about moving around and about not necessarily having children to take care of, I think I would have been possibly even just as happy as I am now. So you decide at 19 not to do that. How do you get to where you are now? This is where it gets interesting. So I graduated with my degree and married my husband, Mr. Pepper, who is wonderful (laughs) and already had his sights set on grad school. We were in school in San Diego. The grad school he wanted to go to is in Kansas City, Missouri. So we got married that summer moved all of our things to Kansas City, and he started grad school in the fall. We bought our first home together. And so immediately, we were halfway across the country from our families. He was in school full time. We had a mortgage. We're newly married. And I obviously need to get a job. I'm taking care of most of the finances at that point, which was really scary. That was really the first time I was ever, either one of us, was ever financially independent. I just had to find a job that worked and that was going to pay me a steady paycheck. So I took a job in a corporate marketing position at an architecture firm. That ended up being just something that I had to choose out of necessity. And again, I think that all of our decisions have an impact on where we end up in life. But at the time, I was miserable. So I can look back and see that I learned so much during those years. Those were the years that I actually started my blog, um, which is now a huge part of my business. But... You could say that if I were happier, I might not have started my site and who knows what I'd be doing. I might still be in that position. I don't know. (laughs) Like it's one of those things. So I started my blog and then shortly thereafter, I started doing some personal styling on the side purely because people would just reach out and say, hey, can you come help me with my closet or can you help me come shopping? I'm going to a wedding or I need to get some outfits for a new job or whatever it may be. I was so honored. I remember the first two clients I had, I'll never forget them. They both reached out around the same time. It was November. And I remember that I went to both of their homes, did both the jobs. And then as I was leaving, in both cases, they were like, so what do I, what do I owe you? Like they got out their checkbook and they're like, what are your rates? And I was like, in my mind thinking, I don't have rates. Like (laughs) I I need to either make something up on the fly or like tell them I'll get back to them. And so I think I just blurted out like, uh, $45. I'm positive that was my first check. And it was probably like a two hour session, which is a fairly small fraction of what I charge now for that same amount of time. But it's just funny because I I didn't want to look unprofessional. So I just blurted something out. And I still remember getting in my car and having this check in my hand and thinking, did somebody just pay me to stand in their closet with them and put together outfits and do something that comes very naturally to me and that feels so fun and fulfilling that I couldn't even believe someone was willing to fork over the cash for it. 
which interestingly enough is not at all a part of what I do anymore. I actually don't offer any type of personal or editorial styling services anymore. Yeah. So why do you stop doing it? I realized a couple of things. First of all, I was still at my full-time job. And so the time that I had available to do styling work was either in the evenings or on the weekends, which was time away from my husband. And I started to realize that it was really emotionally and mentally draining for me. I would show up at someone's home and very quickly, especially with new clients, I would discover that so much of what we would cover in our sessions was actually far more related to what I call matters of the heart and not as connected to the like fashion that it appeared that we were talking about on the surface. While I actually really love that part of it and that that actually has become far more a part of what I do now in my day to day, those matters of the heart, I would say, At the time, I just wasn't able to manage that and a full-time job and being a fairly new wife and running a blog. It just felt like a lot. And so I kept doing it just like here and there on the side. Then I actually got hired away by J. Crew, um, which is something that I don't really talk about. It was I know. I didn't know that. Yeah. So it feels like a blip on the radar. You know what I mean? Like it just was such a quick thing. They found me through my blog. Actually, Gerard, my husband, worked for the company as a personal stylist while he was in grad school. He was good friends with his manager there and she was the regional director. She knew of this position that came available, which was regional director of visuals and merchandising. I was basically in charge of making sure that the stores in my region looked like the catalog or looked like this huge binder that we would get sent 10 times a year, basically. And all of the things that went into that, which surprisingly, perhaps there were so much more to it than just styling the mannequins or making sure someone styled the mannequins correctly. It was a lot of statistics. It was a lot of analytics. We were constantly looking at like the demographics of certain zip codes. I could go on and on. It was just eight months that I was there. I was probably working like 60 plus hours a week. And so I was working really, really hard. I left the corporate job, my desk job to pursue this and got burnt out really quickly. So then where do you go after J. Crew fizzles? So I had started my blog and I was starting to get some television jobs on our local Kansas City stations. There were like three or four of them and I would just kind of make my rounds, had great connections with the producers there and I was able to do these style segments and gaining a lot of momentum with my styling clients. The one nice thing about working at J. Crew was that my schedule was pretty flexible. Um, Like occasionally we'd have to do overnights and things like that. And so On those weeks, I could do more styling clients, but eventually it got to the point where it started to feel like a little bit of a conflict of interest. Here I was running this blog and this styling business and doing these TV segments, and people were recognizing me from that. And then also kind of asking, wait, so like, do you work for J. Crew and is that why you're on TV or what's the connection there? So I realized I needed to make a decision. It felt like I was gaining momentum in my own business. And so I actually, I went to my boss, my supervisor, who wasn't even in the same city. And I called him one day and I remember I was telling him some of the things that I was getting to do. And they actually really do not like their employees to have blogs, really. I don't know if that's like a well-known thing or if they really officially come out and say that, but I just came totally clean with him. And he was like, I think you need to go pursue your business. And let me give you some context. I started full-time working for myself in September of 2009. So the economy had crashed. 
people were looking at me like I was nuts because I was leaving a stable job to pursue some willy-nilly creative blogging thing that nobody quite understood back then. I remember telling him the story and he goes, you've got to do it. If you have momentum, you have to go with it. And if it doesn't work out, call me in six months and we'll give you your job back. And that was like the safety net that I needed. And my very next breath was giving him my notice. I love that. Okay. So what do you do now? Now I do kind of a large handful of things, but one of the reasons why you and I kind of connected over this topic of making money online is because I was presenting with Hillary at all. And we both have gone on a similar journey of really having to hustle and finding ways to make money as best as we can. And for both of us, it's been mostly online and mostly in the style industry. And what has happened for me is that I over-diversified to the maximum. And I know Hillary and I have some similarities in that. And she's done a really great job of kind of honing back in. And I'm, I would say on the path towards honing back in on what I really want slash need slash can be doing. And so right now I have two main components that I would say bring in revenue. One is I I have a blog that I write called Style and Pepper and I do underwritten content there. And what does underwritten mean? So it's sponsored posts, basically. I call it underwritten content because it's far more integrated than most people know a sponsored post to be. If you read a blog and you see that the person has written about, I have nail polish in front of me, so I'm going to use that as an example. You see that the person wrote, I love this brand of nail polish. It's so great. And these are all the different ways that you can use it. And then you see at the bottom, it says, this post was sponsored by nail polish XYZ. That's like a more traditional sponsored post. And so what I actually offer to brands is like a more interactive approach. And so we work really closely together on figuring out how can I use the compensation that you're going to give me in order to gain access to my audience? How can I use that compensation to create a post that gives a ton of value to my readers and goes far above and beyond the normal content that I would create. For me, like the posts I like to create, typically I do a concrete catwalk post, which are just basically my outfits. And that was how the whole blog started. Or I do maybe like a roundup or I do a beauty bite where I'm like giving some of my beauty tips or tricks, things like that. When I get approached by a brand or when I approach a brand, usually it's a product that has a lot more possibility around it. There's just so much room for creativity and for interaction. And and I try to always loop it in with all of the different forms of media that I use. And so it's not just a blog post. It's maybe, you know, we come up with a campaign that's a partnership that we do on Twitter, or maybe it's an Instagram takeover, or maybe it's a YouTube video series or whatever it ends up being. I package it together. And the reason for that, if you want to know the truth, is twofold. And one is that I really think it makes for a more congruent experience for my audience, the little community that we have at Style & Pepper, but it also enables me to charge more money as kind of the bottom line. I'm not just charging a one-off here and there. I'm engaging with these brands in a longer-term partnership that feels more like I'm a brand ambassador or kind of like a spokesperson per se, though it's not that official, and less like I just have all of this editorial content that can be bought a la carte. Are you primarily making your money through the sponsorships at this point? Right now, I have kind of these buckets is what I call them. So the underwritten content on Style & Pepper is certainly one of the main buckets. The other bucket is I do consulting work for other individuals. And right now, it's looking 
a lot like what I call lifestyle design. It's kind of morphed and changed over the years. I think it really always sort of depends on what I end up working on tends to be what people ask me to help them with the most. And so because I've been over the past several years growing and building this holistic lifestyle approach that I call pepperology, I started getting a lot of folks reaching out who maybe follow the blog or follow me on social media, or maybe they've been a client in the past and they want help in creating a happy, healthy, and flavorful life. Again, we have an actual approach that I take them through that's called pepperology, but pepperology is kind of that second bucket. So I'm either coaching folks one-on-one, or we also have these really fun branded workshop events that we call pepper brunch. And we have some dinners too. So those are pepper dinners. They're in-person meetups where people can come learn more about the approach, meet each other, enjoy brunch together. And then we often have a discussion where I'm interviewing an expert in front of an audience about a specific ingredient that ends up being one of the ingredients we talk about in our pepperology approach. So that's the second bucket. Then the third bucket is my more visible appearance type projects. I call them speaking, teaching, whether it's at different industry conferences or at local high schools. I still do quite a bit of on-air work. I had an infomercial that I worked on this year that's still out. I actually just... Wait, what's it about? Have we not talked about this? Okay, this is actually hilarious because every once in a while, someone that I know from real life that like doesn't know that I have a blog or any type of online presence or anything. I'm talking about like the lady Carmela who always checks me out at the grocery store. The other day she was literally cracking herself up because she was telling me this story about how she was flipping through the channels late at night and she saw a girl on a commercial that she thought looked like me. I just kind of looked at her and I was like, do you remember what it was for? And she said, yeah, I think it was like makeup or something. It was a Bare Minerals infomercial. I've worked with them for years. They're a fantastic company. I've done year-long brand ambassadorships with them. We've done a lot of video content together. And last year, they asked me to come be a part of their latest infomercial. And it was just hilarious because Carmela, my buddy at the grocery store, she's like, I thought it was you. It looked just like you. And I was like, Carmela, it totally was me. (laughs) And she had no idea. That's awesome. So what are the other buckets? Those are the three main ones, the blog, the lifestyle design, and then the speaking and kind of on-air and teaching appearances that I do. Those are the current ones. Those are the things that were really, actually heard a really great metaphor that made a little light bulb go on above my head. My friend Kathleen Shannon, who has an awesome podcast as well, it's called Being Boss. I was listening to one of her episodes and she says she thinks about it like, pulling onto a block and turning her taxi light on. So in New York City, if you see the taxis driving around, the taxis that have their light on, that means that they are available and that you can flag them down. But if the light's not on, it means that there either is someone in the car or they're not picking up any passengers or anything like that. And so those are the three buckets where for me, like my taxi light's on. I'm constantly like thinking of different ways that I can pull in new clients and and get new work in that way. And then I have a long list, as you've already kind of alluded to of things that I, I don't necessarily pursue actively. Some of them I actually have officially even archived, like the personal styling is a great example of that. When I look at my list of things, aside from the three that I just mentioned, it's kind of interesting because my top earners for last year, for 2014, include those three, but also include several others that I'm not actively pursuing because 
they've come about in ways that, you know, someone reaches out and says, I mean, the infomercial is a great example. Like I'm not actively pursuing infomercial work, but the company reached out and said, we'd be interested in having you do this. Would you like to come to California and shoot with us? And well, of course, I love doing stuff like that. And so it was easy to say yes to. Why don't we talk a little bit about how you've made money in the past so that we can go through your part of the 27 ways you make money online? Sure. I would say one big one has been appearing as a lifestyle expert, either on local TV or on national news. If people are interested in that, what should they know? I would say the biggest piece of advice that I could give for something like that is to first hone in on what your expertise is. And that's actually probably going to be a good point for a lot of these really kind of honing in on your own personal angle and expertise as it relates to what a producer would be interested in sharing on their show, because a lot of it ends up being finding a producer that's interested in featuring either you or a product that you're going to be talking about. And that can sound really daunting or scary, but there are tons of resources online that talk about, you know, what producers are looking for. And it's kind of one of those things that it takes some networking and some reaching out and kind of have to prepare yourself for hearing a lot of no's before a yes. But once you develop a relationship with the network or a station, there ends up being a lot more doors opening. So what's the next one? Year-long brand ambassadorships are another one. That's something that has come about through having the blog. I would say that, you know, it's in that case kind of important that you have some type of platform or audience. I work with companies like Old Navy and Lean Cuisine and Brahmin Handbags, and they sign me on for a year-long or a two-year-long stint where they know that I'm going to be using their product and excited about their product. Maybe it does end up popping up in my social media and online, but I'm attending events with them and on behalf of them, kind of like a little mini spokesperson. I'm sure a lot of people that are into blogging are probably very interested in how you got some of those. So are they reaching out to you directly or are you also pitching them? In all of those cases, it's been them reaching out to me directly. But I have to say one of the biggest tips that I could give you in those cases is if you have brands reaching out to you or even if you're pitching brands from square one, the best way to really connect with them beyond just a, hey, I'd love to share you on my blog or I'd love to share you on my social media is to show them where your value is in terms of being an influencer. And I don't just mean like tell them you have really big numbers or anything like that, because I'm like more of a medium sized influencer, I would say, but sharing with them different ideas and strategies for campaigns that would benefit them in their specific goals. That honestly sometimes takes a conversation up front. And I'm thankful that I kind of get to meet people that are in these types of positions at companies just because of the networking and the events and things that I go to. But I would say show them what your value is beyond just your audience and they'll really respect that. What's one of the examples of value beyond your audience? I would say one of the best examples is sharing with them an idea that I have for a creative campaign that lives online, um, specifically with Lean Cuisine. A few years ago, they launched a salad product that was a salad additions product. And they really didn't work with bloggers or online influencers much at the time. And so for that particular partnership, it was me coming on board to help them learn about what it takes to work with bloggers as a brand. And then I worked with them very closely to develop a whole campaign around that launch and was able to give them insight, not only as a consumer of their product or as you know someone that's a part of the media, but also as someone who understands what the whole kind of marketing online world is like as well. You're not just sharing your, their content on your site. You're also helping them craft a campaign that would go beyond just your blog to other bloggers or influencers. Definitely. So what's the next way of making money? Another one is hosting shopping events. I love doing things like this. 
This was a big one for me last year. I got to work with Gap and Ted Baker and a handful of other stores here in New York City. They really want me to not only invite my online community to come hang out and shop in real life, but they also want me there to provide styling help and, again, bringing in that expertise point, but to kind of create a social shopping environment where people feel comfortable and feel like it's friendly. And it's not just like you're walking into a store and buying something from the sales associate who's in there. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you know, when there's an event around it, it can feel a lot more fun and people are a little bit more apt to actually spend and go home with something fun. So you get paid for that? Yeah, I know. That sounds awesome. (laughs) This is something that anyone can do, honestly. If you are in the fashion industry, especially if you're in a city where it maybe isn't as saturated yet with the kind of style expert market, I did this in Kansas City almost right off the bat when I started getting inquiries for styling help. I would go to some of the local boutiques and say, hi, I'm a local stylist. First of all, I love your shop because obviously flattery is quite handy in these situations. And I would say, can I leave a stack of my business cards? I'm a personal stylist and I would love to not only bring some of my clients in to meet your shop, but I also would be more than happy to have you give out my card if you feel like someone's looking for some extra help. But then I would also say, if you'd ever be interested in hosting some type of event or party, we would call them sip and shop. (laughs) We would basically like close the shop. They'd invite everyone that typically shopped at their store. I'd invite everyone from the blog and people would show up and we would just sort of sip something fun and we would shop together and they would pay me because I would be there as their personal stylist and the shoppers felt like they were getting all this added value. And I think it brought people in the door, but I would say that's a totally actionable thing that people can do wherever they live across the country. This is so good. Okay. So what's the next one? So another one is speaking at conferences and events. That one, I think, just really takes a lot of pitching right off the bat, because when you haven't done it yet, it can be hard to secure a spot on a conference roster. But towards the beginning, again, if you know what your expertise is, and for me, most of the speaking that I've done and teaching that I've done at conferences and at different universities and things like that has related to not style, but actually online marketing and social media. As I've started to build up my business in those areas, I really would pursue opportunities on a small scale to go and speak and teach at different things. One of the very first things that I did actually after we moved here to the New York area was I made friends with someone at NYU accidentally. He was a colleague through another project and he actually happened to be an adjunct professor in the new media program. And after hearing about some of my background and what I did at the time and do now, he said, you've got to become one of our regular guest speakers. And so I'll go and speak at his class and in their program. Of course they pay for that, but that has sort of given me, I would say more of a leg to stand on when I'm trying to pitch larger conferences or larger scale projects that sort of relate to that industry. In the conference side, are you pitching as well? I don't typically pitch myself for conferences, but I feel really blessed that those have kind of come up organically. But I know people that do actively pitch themselves. And you know what, actually, I did pitch myself for something like two or three weeks ago. I stayed up so late doing it one night because I was like, this is going to be awesome. I'm just going to kill it. They're going to love me. I put so much effort into this and waited a few weeks, kind of forgot about it and just got an email like a few days ago saying that I didn't get it. It was so good for me (laughs) to hear that. I felt (laughs) like I was like, okay. It was just like one of those moments where I got put in my place a little bit and 
obviously I'm not going, but I, I was kind of glad that it would leave room for other opportunities, perhaps. And what's after speaking? So that kind of also includes retreats. I actually, I speak at a handful of women's retreats throughout the year. Usually they're affiliated with different churches. And then fun fact about Mr. Pepper, he's actually a bivocational minister. So he does pulpit supply at churches in our area and outside of our area. And a lot of times I will go with him. And if he preaches the sermon one Sunday morning, a lot of times I will then offer an opportunity to do like a women's event in the afternoon on that Sunday. It's really, really fun to kind of loop in both my faith but also my interest in confidence and style and reaching out to women, sort of combining them all into one. And that's been really awesome. That sounds like such a great fit. So what's next? I'm going to continue on with some of my lifestyle design work. These events that we're doing have been growing and just feeling so organic to what I wanted them to look like from the very beginning. And I was really scared to put those out there when I first started them. So we're going to see where they go, the pepperology events. And then we also are starting a podcast. My husband and I are starting a podcast called Marriage is Funny. I am so excited because I have such a big vision for that, sometimes to a fault and just a big idea girl. But I think for this We have a lot of things that we envision in terms of not only monetizing it, because that's going to be way down the road, but just kind of letting this inform, you know, some of our lifestyle decisions that we make and then some of the ways that we continue to work and speak together. And um, I'm super, super excited to kind of continue pursuing that while I let myself sort of lapse on archiving the things that I know I'm sort of ready to close the book on. So for pepper brunches, just to go back to that, I know what a pepper brunch is, but it still may be a little unclear. So how are you making money currently through them? Or is this something that could have money potential in the future? That's a great question. This is something that I get asked a lot because from the front of it, I think it's probably a little misleading. So our pepper brunch events are capped at 80 people and we do them in New York City and they're free. So of course, The first question is like, well, how can you run a free event for that many people without charging money to cover the costs? And what we do is we actually work with sponsors. We have sponsors that are always brands that tie into that month's theme that end up helping us by essentially writing a check to cover the costs of the event in exchange for having their product or service be a pretty visible part of our event. And it's interesting because nobody has even batted an eye at that. I think because we started them off being free, people are so excited to come get a fun Sunday afternoon. They get brunch, they get mimosas, we have goodie bags. They get to listen to a great speaker, not me. It's always an expert who comes to speak about the specific theme, but it just has become one of those other ways that I'm able to say when I'm working with a brand, hey, this is just one of the many things that I'm involved with. And if you're interested in being a part of something where we are exploring the intersection of style and confidence, you can absolutely come on board. And most of the time, they're really excited about it. And then we do have uh, kind of one-off events here and there. We do pepper dinners that are a ticketed event. Those are $65 and that covers the costs and then provides the money that I need to pay my team for those. And those are smaller. Those are typically like 20 people. So kind of a different model there, but they're both really fun. And we're actually getting ready to launch a new one. I guess I could maybe share. It's not quite ready, but (laughs) they're going to be pepper parties. And so I had this come about because I had two different readers, one in Denver and one in Boston who reached out and said, I know you're not typically in my city, but I really want to come to a pepperology event. I don't know how I'm going to make it happen because I don't get to New York often, but 
would there ever be an opportunity for me to host one in my home where I invite maybe like 15 to 20 of my friends and family and coworkers, and you would just come to my house and do one there. And obviously that could get really pricey if I'm having to like fly all over the country to do those. But something that's kind of fun is we are planning to hopefully do kind of a cross country road trip in the fall for part of our podcast. And I'm hoping that we can loop in some pepper parties when we do that as well. And so um, with the existing outreach that's there, and then with the amount of friends that I've got kind of in cities smattered all over, I'm thinking that we can make that into something that actually happens, which I'm excited about. So have we covered all of the ways you've made money in the past? I would say just a few extras that I maybe don't do any longer is I have done an evergreen digital course in the past. That's something that Hillary and I share. I actually sold my YouTube channel about a year and a half ago to a multi-channel network who purchased my channel and then paid me to create the content for that space. That partnership isn't happening any longer, but that was a significant part of my revenue for a little while. I was making my S&P TV videos, which is just, as you know, extremely labor intensive, really fun because it's my favorite medium is on air, but it just became something that wasn't quite worth the amount of time and effort that was going into it. And then I do, you know, modeling here and there for lookbooks and different catalog things. That's just kind of a fun one that my taxi light isn't necessarily on for that one. I'm not pursuing those projects, but it's fun when they come about. I've done business consulting. And then of course, as I mentioned before, the personal wardrobe styling, the editorial styling, when I've consulted with different brands, a lot of times that involves reaching out to bloggers and helping them with their social media strategy. But I think that pretty much sums it up. Do you have any tips for those last five that you kind of just shared? You know, I would say the biggest tip actually applies more to the quantity of things. It seems like, especially online, there are just so many possibilities. I feel like everyone I talk to is either a social media consultant or a blogger or a business coach and all these different things. And it's probably partially because that's sort of the world that I operate in or the industry that I'm in anyways. But I would say the biggest advice I could give would be to pick one and get really good at it and only focus on that one thing if you can until moving on to something else. That's a mistake that I've made over and over actually is that when people would approach me and say, hey, do you do this? My answer was almost always yes because I felt like if I were more diverse, then it would bring me more money. Then I would also have more experience and that would bring about more opportunities in the future. What I've learned is that I've far over diversified myself over the years. And now I'm just really pulling back into just a few core things. Probably you could argue that I, I need to under diversify even more and pull it in even more. But I would just say that like when looking at all of the different options that we've presented, don't be overwhelmed. Don't feel like you have to do more than one or many, but just maybe start to think about which feels the most right for you at this moment. Of course, that's going to depend on so many different things, your life stage, your financial needs. But I, of course, I'm going to take a little page from your book and say that asking your intuition is always going to be the best way to kind of figure it out before moving forward. Amen. Obviously, I love that answer. (laughs) (laughs) Hillary also kind of shared this idea of going into too many things and having to pare back and really narrow things down. Do you think that that's just a phase of the life of a business owner getting started? Or do you think it really is possible to start with just one thing when you are just starting out? I definitely know of and admire a handful of really successful business people who have started with the one thing and and get really good at that and then grow from there. And when I see that happen, like I'll just use an example. We love Shark Tank in our house. Whenever I see one of those people on Shark Tank that are like, 
I invented this tiny little really specific random widget that like does this one thing. A coconut opener, I remember. Yes, yes, the freaking coconut opener that was like an axe. That was hilarious. I was like, this guy is, I mean, I don't actually remember if he was super successful, but let's just say that he was for the sake of the example. Like, I remember thinking, I am so envious of that coconut man because (laughs) I wish that I had something specific enough. And again, this is part of me having this long journey of figuring it out and, and feeling burnt out in a lot of ways and stressed out plenty of the time. Again, I'm getting a lot better, but You know, it's funny because I'm envious of the people that do have that kind of really specific start. Though, again, you don't know what he experienced to get to that point. And so I actually just sort of use that as a little thread of hope that I cling to. He was a musician, Jesse. He did a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So that makes me feel better because maybe someday I will have a coconut opener. No, No, maybe someday I will have my like one thing that is is this epiphany and then the choirs will sing from the heavens and I will I will realize that this is what I'm supposed to pour all my energy into. I mean, I daydream about different products and things like that. And I've kind of like half started things with the intent to become an overnight sensation on Shark Tank, but <laughs> to be continued on that one. So anyways, yeah, I would just say that I think it's possible, but I think that it takes a lot of self-control. Did Hillary cover the creative candy shop? I can't remember. Why don't you share it just in case? She has this idea that creative people look at the world through the lens of a little kid who's just walked into like the biggest, most beautiful candy shop in the entire world. And you want to grab everything and shove it in your basket because that's just how little kids are. They love candy in most cases. I totally relate to that. And I think it's such a brilliant metaphor because as a creative, it's so easy to say, well, yeah, like the world's my oyster. There's all these opportunities. And now with the amount of our lives that operate online, it just feels like the possibilities are infinite. And so I'll just speak for myself. I am often quite grabby and I want to shove everything in my basket. But if a little kid did a candy shop and then ate it all, they would get really, really sick. And coincidentally, I, as an adult who have an adverse reaction to sugar would also get really sick. So the candy thing really resonates with me. But yeah, I just think it's a smart way of looking at it and remembering that you have to have self-control in order to just pick the one treat that you know is going to be the most delicious and that is going to give you the most amount of value for whatever you're spending on it and that is going to last you the longest or whatever it may be, whatever your criteria is that makes it important to you. But I think that's a great way of looking at it. And I'm constantly referencing that for myself. And one of the nice things if people are feeling like they have this urge to put all the candy in the basket or just one, maybe what they can do is try one at a time. And if it's not working out, let it go. Yeah. And hearing you say that makes me realize that my whole career up until now has been like a sampler platter or something. But that's great. It's like one of those chocolate boxes where you can try all the different types or something. I don't know. It's just, I totally think that it's okay to sample as you go because I've done that and it's worked out fairly well for me. And I really, really love what I'm doing. I just feel so grateful to have sort of a story that incorporates lots of different experiences because I think that's what adds the layers that make life interesting. Now let's talk about what doubts or resistance you faced in your life outside of your business. Is there anything that has recently been bothering you that you're working through? I love this question. I think for me, a lot of times resistance that I meet comes more from logistics If that makes sense, it can apply to business sometimes, but it also applies to normal life as well. Usually it's a matter of me realizing either there aren't enough hours in the day. And so I get really stressed out and flustered, or maybe it's me realizing, oh my gosh, I'm traveling the next 
three or four weekends in a row. And so I realized I'm not going to be with my husband and my brother who lives with us as well. And so I feel a lot of resistance and sort of panic and self-doubt when the logistic pieces of my life start to feel like they're fraying. How do you overcome it when that happens? Well, something that I'm really just continuing to try to learn. I feel like such a broken record saying this. And I also feel like it's a very common thing that people have to struggle with. I guess saying no is a big one and sort of trying to ignore the FOMO that I feel. I definitely notice that when I do start to get doubtful or frustrated or panicky, chatting it out with my husband or my business coach or a friend tour, you, I call <laughs> or so. I feel like fortunate to be able to have someone to call when stuff like that feels overwhelming. And that really, really makes a huge, huge difference. And I think that's one of the reasons why when I'm working with a client who's struggling with something, it just makes me feel sometimes too much empathy because I understand so, so well what they're going through. And what would you tell someone who is just starting out on this journey? The biggest thing to remember is that no matter what your goals are, you have the ability to use confidence as the catalyst that gets you there. If you can think of it in those terms, I would say that would hopefully be helpful, but I know it feels easier said than done because when I hear people say things that sound trite, I kind of roll my eyes. But the way that I encourage people to think about it is imagining it as that like final special secret super delicious ingredient that you would sprinkle onto anything you'd serve to guests or um, even yourself. And that's kind of where the pepper comes in. It's like peppering in those unique and really special parts of you throughout everything that you put your hands on and owning those as your truths will be the best way to sort of use confidence to get you there. I think the creative license in the metaphor is kind of what helps it to feel, I would say more fun and fulfilling and less like, a chore or something that is impossible to reach. Yeah. So I know you love confidence. Like I love values-based intentions. I know that that word can trigger with my own clients. I've seen it saying that word to some people doesn't stress them out. Saying confidence to other people totally stresses them out. So how would you describe confidence in a way that people can relate to? Confidence to me, it means finding and embracing your truth and living your life fully believing whatever that is. For me, my truth is that I was created in God's image and that really weaves itself into everything that I do. And if that isn't necessarily something that you believe or that someone else believes, that's okay because there are so many different truths out there. You just have to figure out what yours is and believe it and embrace it. Some of the resistance that I find with my own clients is that you know, maybe their truths are actually really unfortunate. And what do you do if they've experienced something that's been traumatic or they've struggled with a certain thing for many years and, and it's true because it actually happened, but they don't want that to be their truth. I would say then basically rewriting that for yourself and uncovering what it means to take care of yourself and to use that confidence or to use that truth to help you feel like your life is happy and flavorful and fun and healthy because that's what everyone deserves. And I think that the more you live those things, the better you're able to take care of the others around you and the more you're able to make an impact on everyone you come in contact with. That's beautiful. Jesse. thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and share with us. Sure. Thanks for having me, Jess. And there you have it. Thank you, Jesse, so much for coming on the show and thank you for listening. 
If you would like to send Jesse a message, the best place to do that would be over on Instagram. Her handle is at style and pepper. And of course, if you'd like to find me on Instagram or Twitter, you can go over to Jess C as in chartreuse lively. If you'd like to get the show notes for this episode and that free printable I mentioned, which will help you take notes and keep track of all these 27 ways, you can go over to JessLively.com slash Teague, A-R-T-I-G-U-E. Before I share a sneak peek about next week's show, let's talk with Heidi Reddick about her company, Moodsprays.com. Heidi, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Jess. I'm so glad to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I make a series of anti-bad mood sprays. I started out as a consultant to artists around the country, and it was just time for me to get some of my own ideas out there. And I've been making anti-apathy spray for myself for about 20 years. Were you experiencing apathy at the time? Yes, I was. I had a cubicle job. You know how you get that after-lunch slump? It was just the perfect blend of grapefruit and basil, the two scents that kind of freshen the air and sharpen your mind, and I used it every day. Then you decided to sell from there. Yes. You're in some pretty great stores right now, and including some pretty fancy ones. Yeah, I got a surprise call from Four Seasons Resorts at Las Colinas, so we're there. And then I also have the sprays in a bunch of small boutiques around the country. It's awesome. Tell us exactly what bad moods you're eliminating with these anti-bad mood sprays. There are four scents. We have the antidote for ego, apathy, the original spray, passive, and aggressive. (laughs) Can you use passive and aggressive together for someone who's experiencing passive-aggressive behavior? Yes, you can. And it's a lovely combination. Aggressive has like a blood orange base note and passive is a sweet jasmine and ylang ylang. They go really well together if you find yourself on both sides of the coin. (laughs) The branding is so clever. I feel like people are gifting these to friends and family as well. Yes, they are. They're a great gift. The label copy is hilarious. What are the uppercase V values for anti-bad mood sprays? Uppercase V values, I would say natural is one of them. You know, the labels are funny, but it's a really beautiful product. They're clean, no added phthalates that are common in many home fragrances, so they don't run the risk of disturbing your hormones, which was really important to me. I love the connection I make with my customers. I've gotten to know so many people as friends over the years, and that I really treasure that. Also humor and the sharing of ideas not always so funny on the blog. We tackle some really serious stuff, but we also do it with a grain of salt. Like we know we're screwed up and that's why we're on the anti-bad mood sprays site, but we're doing it together and we're learning and growing. So I hear you have something special for Lively Show listeners. Yes, I can offer you guys a discount of 20% with the code Lively on checkout. Where can we find these awesome and beautiful and funny anti-bad mood sprays. You can go to antidoteforego.com or moodsprays.com, M-O-O-D-S-P-R-A-Y-S.com. Heidi, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Jess, and thanks so much for doing your show. I've learned so much. And now for a sneak peek, 
Next week is our final week of Money Month. We'll be speaking with Farnoosh Torabi of Farnoosh TV. I'm so excited to have Farnoosh on to help tackle some money questions that we have not yet covered this month. We've done a really good job making sure that these episodes about money don't overlap too much with the episodes we've already had over the last two seasons about money as well. So if you're interested in more money-focused topics on the show, feel free to go to thelivelyshow.com and click that money category to see some debt stories and how to get out of it, women who are breadwinners and their families, and more. And until next week, may something wonderful happen to you today. <laughs>